for me personally, I look back at my upbringing in Puerto Rico and those eight years, because I lived there from when I was like almost six to 14. And for me, those were very formative years in the way that, that I talk, I act. I mean, everything that I feel that I am now is a big part of, of that upbringing. And, um, and for, for my daughter, I think of it the same way is that, you know, maybe these dishes that we make, like, don't, they're like, oh, that's just dinner or whatever. But 20, 30 years from now, she's going to be like, wow, like that planted a seed to do X, Y, and Z. Welcome to another episode of Amuse Bouche, a podcast where we muse about food. I'm Kehlani Palmasano, and each episode I sit down with passionate foodies and experts to explore all of the ways food touches our lives. I had an amazing conversation with Jessica Van Dopte Jesus this week, and we talked about so many different things, food, travel, what it's like to grow up and live in multicultural environments, and just how important that cultural fluidity is, especially when it comes to raising mixed children. I don't have any kids yet, but parents like Jessica, who travel the world with their children and have them engage in different cultures, well, it gives me a lot of hope for future generations. Jessica Van Dopte Jesus is a Washington, D.C.-based travel media specialist with a focus on food and attainable luxury travel. She began traveling as a young Marine 21 years ago and has been to over 50 countries on and off duty. She now lives in D.C. with her husband, Martin, and their four-year-old daughter, Lucila, also known as Lou. Jessica's YouTube series, The Dining Traveler Series, takes viewers on a delicious journey to restaurants along the East Coast and spotlights chefs bringing their cultures to the plate. Jessica also invites viewers into her home with incredible dishes that draw from her Puerto Rican heritage and her husband's Dutch culinary traditions. The home-cooked meals that Jessica presents on her YouTube channel are a multicultural experience, an experience that is not unfamiliar to Jessica, who grew up in both Puerto Rico and the western part of New York State. Jessica, you grew up in a really culturally diverse household, you've traveled the world, you've lived in other countries, and it just seems like since day one, your entire life has just been steeped in multiculturalism. How do you think that's influenced your work? I think, um, yeah, like ever since I grew up, you know, I grew up in Puerto Rico, obviously part of the United States and you have the American side and the Puerto Rican side. And then I went to a a very, um, very diverse college, State University of New York in Albany. And I learned so much. Um, you know, one of my best friends is Chinese. The other one is Indian. The other one is half Filipino, half Hungarian. So I, it's just been around me my whole my whole life. And then when I joined the Marines and was stationed overseas, then that exposure and that immersion to other cultures. And I just cannot imagine um, living in a place where, a hom- where, where there's a homogeneous culture. It would be super boring. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, becomes expressed in a lot of the foods that you explore, but also the foods that you cook within the kitchen. So tell me a little bit about um, the Dining Traveler series and kind of the inspirations behind it and what you're what you're trying to achieve. So when I started the Dining Traveler cooking series uh, back uh, April last year, which seems like 10 years ago, but it was really a year, a year ago. Yeah. 
What we were trying to do is how do we bring travel to people's homes? And one of the things that I love to do or we love to do as a family, my husband and I, after we travel, is like, oh, let's try to recreate that dish. You know, it's never going to taste the same, but at least we have those memories. Right. So I wanted to do the same thing with the Dining Traveler cooking series and also bring um, you've probably watched some of my videos and I bring some other chefs and to give their two cents and to kind of guide me through through the recipe. And I think it's a great way to get to learn about other cultures. I've learned so much from this experience. Um, And also it gives you an added appreciation. Like I've always appreciated the work that people put in their food, especially international foods, because a lot of people, they are like, oh, I paid $10 for this chicken tiki masala and they don't realize that it takes forever to make. So I think that um, it to do it myself with my own hands, like shielding pistachios or doing, you know, or waiting two hours for my Taiwanese noodle soup to simmer, it just gave me this newfound appreciation, not only to eat, but to actually cook and prepare those international dishes um, while at the same time honoring those traditions. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I definitely get that impression of like, when someone sees the behind the scenes effort and the work that goes into it, suddenly it gives you this understanding of, oh, wow, this is a complex meal. There's a lot going on here. It's more than just, you know, boiling noodles Mm -hmm. in a stew or seasoning a chicken. There's like all of this, like context and steps involved in it that, uh, that, yeah, require a lot of focus and attention, but also um, have required practice and expertise too. Uh, I really liked the one video where it was the coquito. It was around the holidays. <laughs> and what was so fun was that you were sharing the coquito that you were familiar with, but then the woman that you were um, making the coquito uh, with, uh, what was her name again? Uh, Daniela. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Uh, she made the ponche crema. She's from the Dominican Republic. So yeah, yes. we were doing like this, you know, Dominican Republic versus Puerto Rico, but in a fun, friendly way. <laughs> yeah. And I think like uh, people kind of forget that we might, uh, you know, we have a lot of different dishes, but we also have a lot of dishes that are similar or might have had a lot of um similar influences that have impacted certain dishes and uh, tell us a little bit more about the coquito and what goes what goes into it and how was it kind of similar but different to Daniela's uh, version of the drink so for example with our coquito um, we well as the name implies coquito coconut it the key ingredient is coconut milk, whereas there's the bonche crema is more along the lines of an eggnog. It uses egg yolks, although in some some people's coquito recipes, they, they use also egg yolks. In ours, we don't use it um, just because I feel that it also holds a bit better, obviously, in the fridge. Um, but um, and, but a lot of the spices are the same. Obviously, we use a lot of like cinnamon and nutmeg. So hers is a little thicker. Ours is a bit thinner. And of course, the rum, we use Puerto Rican rum. She uses Dominican rum. But I mean, and I think in the, to me, they're both equally delicious, right? You just grew, I grew up drinking coquitos, of course, my, I will always be partial to it. But, um, and I think that's another thing that I learned too, right? That a lot of times we're like, oh, our stuff is better because it's ours. And through this journey, I realized obviously everybody has their own unique way of, of making things. And it also taught me to, to appreciate that as well. Like you and I can make the same dish and it will taste different or we have a different technique, but it doesn't mean that mine is better than yours or vice versa. 
Oh, definitely. And um, do you feel that that kind of mutual appreciation for all types of cuisines uh, kind of stem back to your own personal travels? Because you've traveled a lot. I know your bio says, what was it, over 50 countries. Um, at, at, at this point, have you, you've added more than 50? Are you like, whereabouts yeah, I'm like, are you? I think like 55, 56. Oh, nice. Well, I love when you <laughs> like, you just lose count. <laughs> yeah. After 50, you know, like, yeah. 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 And, so yeah, go ahead. No. And I, um, to answer your question. Yeah. Um, I think definitely, um, you know, you appreciate your own culture. I think a lot of times you have to leave home to come back and be like, there's things like I, I, from living in Belgium for six years, one thing I appreciate is coming back home to, to the continental United States and, and having access to so much international food, obviously, you know, you're in Philly, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the East coast in Washington, DC, go to New York city, uh, easily. So I really miss that living in Belgium, you have great European food, great Italian, great Greek, obviously Belgian, French, but then when you get to the other international cuisines, it's, it, it, it starts lacking because of the lack of ingredients, the lack of chefs. And, um, so I definitely are more appreciative of the stuff that I can find at home. But at the same time, yeah, obviously traveling really opens you up and it opens your palate, right? Because sometimes, a lot of times I've traveled as a tourist, but many times I've traveled for work um, when I was, especially when I was on active duty in the Marines and we had to deal with our counterparts. So sometimes you're forced to eat food that you're like, oh, I wouldn't eat that. But, you know, I don't want to make our partners, I don't want to offend our partners. So let me try it. <laughs> so, so those are things. And then you're like, oh, that's not that bad. That's actually delicious. So I think that those, tra- those travel experiences really opened uh, my mind and my palate to, to different things. And I'll always be grateful for that. And did you, because you were in Belgium for a while, um, and I think you said that you were getting your, was it your master's degree or your MBA? Yeah, I got my MBA there and then I uh, went to Germany for a year and then I returned and started working um, at NATO as an international staff member. So I was there for I, w- I always count the year that I was in Germany that I also lived in Belgium because I, at the time I was in a relationship with somebody that lived there. So I was traveling a lot back and forth. So six years. <laughs> yes, yes. And well, it, well, Belgium shares a lot of borders with several countries. So I think that yes. when, you, when you're there, you, there's this influence from across the borders that wiggles its way into Belgium food and... That that I mean that's indicative of most cuisines and most most cultures anywhere where there's a border there seems to be a blend of uh of cuisines and foods. It, it, where did you meet Martin though? In Brussels. In- okay, okay. So you yeah. met you met. How did you guys meet? Uh, it's a funny story because we uh, I lived in um, in South Brussels. I lived in uh, in an area near an area called Chatelan, and it's a in Brussels. For those who know Brussels, they're familiar with it. It's a pretty popular square, and, and it's known for Wednesdays. They have this very um, popping um, <laughs> farmers market, and people like and people go there for their strawberries, and then they hang out afterwards to drink wine, and uh, and sometimes tends to be a long night. And uh, so that's, of course, where I lived in that area. And, um, and Martin was there having a drink with uh, a his best friend, actually, he was working at the Hague at the time. And he had come to drop off a client and his friend was like, hey, avoid traffic, meet, a, you know, meet us for, for drinking something to eat. 
And um, I kid you not, we were at the same bar and I walked um, to go to the bathroom and we had made some eye contact before, I'm not going to lie, but I walked towards the bathroom and I actually stepped on his foot and I looked up and I was like, and obviously you've met Martin. I'm like, he's, he's a tall dude. Um, and he's six he's nine. So, so I looked tall. up, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, hello. And uh, yeah, we started talking and that's, that's how we met. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. And how did you, you guys date for a while and realize yeah, like, oh, this he is going is somewhere? My real, he's my real life 90 day fiance, like hashtag your story. Uh, we met actually five weeks when I was due to leave Belgium. So I had already, uh, actually when we met my apartment, like barely had furniture because I had sold all my furniture and I was actually getting ready to turn in my keys. We met like mid September and I was, I moved out, um, October 1st of, of my apartment. Um, but, um, but yeah, so we like dated like for five weeks and then I moved and it was kind of in the beginning, we were like, Oh, let's just hang out, see where it goes. And then we did the long distance thing. And then we decided to get married and we did the long distance thing for almost a year and a half until he came and, you know, we got married and started our life here. Wow. That's like, that Mm -hmm. really is a movie. That's like really sweet. (laughs) Except that it's very functional, so I think that that's why we would not do well in a show. Like, like uh, <laughs> I know it's not I mean, spicy enough to be reality yeah. television. You need more drama. I know it's like, wow, two equals. What? She has a job. She's not trying to take his money, or vice versa. Like, well, and, and I think that's speaking of expectations of things. People almost expect there to be drama in those types of whirlwind, long distance, cross-continental relationships. what? So what was the response to people around you? Did they think like, oh, Jess, you got to like slow down. Like <laughs> what were yeah, people so saying? I, it's funny because when I moved back and I was telling my friends, they're like, oh, you know, it, it would just pass. And they just thought it was kind of like, oh, you know, it's a phase. And then he came to visit me. I moved in at the end of October and he came and spent the holidays with me for three weeks. So I think my friends started taking it a bit more seriously then, but still like, oh, you know, what is going to happen? And then, you know, as the year progressed, we started talking. Um, and I think that this is for a lot of folks that get married older in life. I mean, I was 35 when, not that that's old by by any means, but for yeah. society it, it is. <laughs> and I think that um, when you're at that age, you kind of know what you want and you're very more sure like, okay, this is, this is going to happen. I think that we were both in that point of our lives that we just kind of met. I always tell my girl, especially my girlfriends, but my guy friends too, is like, you have to meet somebody with their light on, you know? And if you both have your lights on, you can move, <laughs> you know, you can move in your re- relationship in a positive way. That's a really beautiful way to think of it because your twenties are feel of full of like self-exploration. And especially when you're a person who travels and has lived by yourself, uh, in another country, completely out of your element, you really do get a good grasp on yourself and you really do learn how to handle yourself. So, Props to you. That's a beautiful, beautiful story. So, you know, you get married and then you have Lou. Is it Lucila, right? Yeah. So her name is Lucila Mariana and she, yeah, her nickname's Lou. She's she's adorable and she definitely (laughs) more traveled than myself already because you were traveling (laughs) while pregnant with her, right? Yes. Yeah. So she, counting in utero, like she's been to three continents and... (laughs) 
um, well, four, you know, including the one we live in. So, uh, but yeah, she, um, she's an amazing little girl. And I I mean, everybody says that about their kids, but my kid is really awesome. Uh, (laughs) But she, you know, she's amazing. And I think that a lot of times, obviously, you know, when you get pregnant, um, you know, I think anybody can relate is that all these things are running through your head. Am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to travel? Especially like if you're in a, in a business that you do a lot of traveling for work or whatever. So I was like, Oh my God, I need to travel as much as I can. So I can get as much content, you know, ready to when I have the baby, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. And, um, and then some opportunities presented themselves um, that we were able to travel with Lou as an infant. And, and I have to say like, and for those who are first time parents, you know, traveling with an infant, at least for me, it was so easy. <laughs> it's free, you know, you have to do is pay for ta- her taxes. And also I was nursing at the time, so I didn't have to carry like formula or none of that other oh, stuff. Wow, yeah. um, so, um, and so that's another benefit. I, I mean, I, people always, you can do whatever you want in terms of feeding, feeding your child. But if there's a pro to nursing is that your kid's very portable <laughs> in that sense, you can feed them whenever. Um, I actually uh, breastfed Lou at a bar in in Belgium. So that's like her claim to fame. I should have taken a photo. (laughs) Seriously, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But And sadly, you know, we haven't, obviously this year, like many other people, we haven't been able to travel. So it's been super sad, but... Um, but we look back and obviously those, those are really beautiful memories of, um, taking her to, and we show her pictures like, Oh, look, Lou, this is your in Colombia or wherever. And, you know, and it's, and now, and, and it's like a teaching moment because then I'm like, Oh, Lou, you were in in Colombia. Like this is in South America. So slowly, I mean, obviously she's four, so she doesn't get the whole thing, but it's, it's a good point of conversation and teaching moments for, for her. Did she notice that you guys didn't travel this year that much? Um, I don't, she hasn't asked much about it, but I think everything's been such a whirlwind that, um, I think that a lot, a lot of it has to do with that. And when, when she does travel, is she just completely enamored with it or is she like, yeah, this is just another day at mommy's office. I think it's more like this is just another day. Like I think it it because and especially before because she just turned four this past November. So before she was so little that for her it was just like oh what a, like you know into Italy and one thing that was really cool is that she very like she did this in Germany and she did this in in um in Italy is that because she was so used to um hearing like choose or chow so she kept on saying like choose chow <laughs> like choose is like you know the chow in, in 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 southern Germany so that was very cute to see her like kind of adapt to it and you know and of course she visits her oma and opa yeah. in in Holland and um obviously you know we haven't been since the pandemic began but uh, it's, it's just like a very special thing to be able to do with your kid. And especially as you know, growing up, I mean, we really didn't travel because obviously we grew up on an island and money was always a thing. So it's a blessing to be able to have those opportunities with my kid. And can you tell uh, if that's had like the travel and also bringing multicultural food into your household? Uh, has that had an impact on her? I know. I, I think I saw you post on social media that she's trilingual, right? 
Yeah, well, she and lately she's been a bit difficult. Like when she was little, obviously more and like any kids, right? When they're the, the smaller they are, the more um, the more you can manipulate them. But as they get older, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like now she's like in a phase that she does not want to speak Spanish, which is super annoying. Um, so I have to be like on top of her twenty four seven. Like, um, but she understands everything, and she understands obviously a lot of Dutch. She's my husband speaks to her in Dutch, and. Um, so yeah, it's in, I mean, she does remote learning, but her school's also bilingual Spanish and English. So she's having a lot of exposure to, to Spanish and through my husband through Dutch and she gets on FaceTime with, you know, her grandparents. So that's, and I have to say, that's really cool to be able to, to have her exposed to so many things. And I'm assuming in the future, obviously things will fall more into it. I remember as a kid, I kind of went through the same back and forth, right, with, with English and Spanish. And I'm just very fortunate that my mom kind of stayed on us, like, you will speak Spanish. Ah. Oh, um, it's, it's, <laughs> impo- it's important. It is, uh, you know, the second most spoken language in the United States. And I yeah. feel like I should probably learn some Spanish because uh, in high <laughs> school, I picked German. Like, who picks German? I think I picked <laughs> it because only 14 people were in the class. And I was like, this seems like a small class. I'll speak. <laughs> I'll learn German. German, sure. <laughs> but it, it's yeah, well, an important language. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and, 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 and yeah, and beyond culture is obviously, um, you know, my husband's multilingual too. He speaks four languages. I speak three. So we, you know, for us, it was really important to have that at home because we realized how big of an asset it's been for us professionally. So we kind of want to plant the seed for her as well. But we also realize that now it's so easy, right. To kind of, especially for me that I'm, I'm, I grew up bilingual. So I grew up with my mom, my mom grew up here in the States. So she's also fully bilingual. So we grew up speaking. It's so funny with my mom and I, like if we have to talk business, especially when I was stationed overseas my and I was single at the time, my mom would do like a lot of my admin stuff, like go to the bank and do this. So we would always say, talk about that stuff in English. But then when it was like family stuff or whatever, we would speak in Spanish, like our business talk was English and then our, our other. Um, so, but, you know, um, but it's also challenging, right? Because in many ways, especially as a writer, like I still, I learned, even though I was born in upstate New York, I, I started first grade in Puerto Rico. So I learned how to read and write first in Spanish. So even as a professional writer now, like I always have this tinge of being a little bit self-conscious about how I I write in English and I'm always like super, like, I mean, you've been my editor, so I always like yeah. read things. Like, I was about a to say, I'm times. like, why are you self-conscious? <laughs> it's totally fine. Yeah, but, I've been your editor. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, shout out to Grammarly. Um, <laughs> oh, I but, use um, Grammarly too. <laughs> isn't it yeah. great? It is fantastic. Um, not, hashtag not sponsored, but you know, I do, it's a, it's a great tool. But, um, but, you know, and also for Martin too, he grew up, uh, obviously his first languages were Dutch, then German, English. So, um, you know, for us, and then he worked for Deutsche Bahn. And so for, for both of us, like being in a multilingual home is very important to us. And, um, we hope that, you know, Lou can, especially all the technology around, there's no excuse. Like she has to at least speak two languages. Come on. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. It's such an important, like you said, an important um, asset to have. And in addition to the multicultural like languages that you're speaking in the household, you're also bringing in multicultural food. And I've been thinking about recently about how mixed families bring in cult, the, the child's culture. Cause Lou is Puerto Rican and Dutch. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so like, how do you create this environment where they get to embrace 
uh, both cultures um, where one doesn't become more of the default. Because like I, I grew up in a mixed household too, yeah. but I definitely feel like a one culture became the more dominant culture, which was my dad's like white. And even though my only Italian uh, relative was like my great grandfather, I mentioned this in the first episode of Amuse Bouche, um, like for some reason it was like all of the women in my family just learned to cook the culture's food from their husbands. So they like Mm -hmm. kind of stopped cooking. Like my mom stopped cooking like chicken and tomato stew. She stopped cooking, you know, catfish and then defaulted to eggplant Parmesan or stuffed peppers or (laughs) pasta and sauce, which were fantastic and delicious and great and everything. But I kind of look back and go like, oh, yeah, why were we constantly making dad's food and not my mom's (laughs) food? Why weren't we making more? Like we did have like black eyed peas and collard greens and catfish (laughs) and everything when we went to my mom's parents' house. But in our own household, it was this like diversion. But uh, um, yeah, like so you're, you know, I loved the Oli Bolin episode of <laughs> the Dining Traveler cooking series. And um, it was just so cute to see you making Martin's recipe and how he was kind of like walking you through it. And then how you as a family, the three of you um, enjoyed the Oli Bolin at the end. And it is kind of nice. I love that. Um, can, can you speak a little bit to what it's like um bringing those cultures together so naturally so that your daughter can engage with both. Um, it's interesting because I, I think also the culture and your it's, it's funny that you mentioned the, in your, the, the moms, but I feel like I'm so like extra Puerto Rican, <laughs> Puerto Rican. I mean, we're already like an extra culture, right. And more extrovert, more like I'm Puerto Rican. And obviously Dutch people are a bit more demure. So it already is kind of like a dominant culture. And also, on top of that, obviously, you know, I had a book about Puerto Rico, so I was traveling a lot to Puerto Rico back and forth. So it's so in your face. <laughs> it's so in your face in our house. And I'm thinking of this super funny story. And I make Puerto Rican food. I don't, I, and I have to say, I'm not a person that makes Puerto Rican food every day. I make right. it like once a week or just not because I don't like it. It's because I like every kind of food. So today oh, I'm like, oh, it's Asian. You've got a lot of, um, yeah, you've yeah. got a lot of foods in your repertoire. Yeah. Like I would really love um, to have a cookbook of like all the things that you like, because it would just be like, <laughs> oh, the dining travelers world it, compendium of yeah. <laughs> of global food because <laughs> you did have the dining travel. Yeah, I mean you did it with um your the Puerto Rican which is a gorgeous and I do want to mention this on the podcast mm. like your gorgeous photogenic um dining traveler cookbook or not cook uh, rather a uh, travel food book of Puerto Rico mm. is just outstanding and people listening Thank should you. absolutely order it now because <laughs> it's it's a, it's a beautiful piece just to have like on my bookshelf and like sometimes like uh, you, when we used to have people come over I liked to curate the books that would be like on the coffee table so the coffee table book selection then I would have like a separate um mantle where it would be oh what books do I want to display on here because I always felt like books are just like this conversation piece too yeah but again I'm digressing like way too much but yes uh so you were mentioning that you only cook Puerto Rican food like once um, a week yeah, like I cook once a week and Lou loves like Puerto Rican. She says like, I love Puerto Rican rice. And I love the way she says, she's like, give me some of that Puerto Rican rice. Um, <laughs> which cute. I'm like, yes, my daughter. Um, but the funny part is that once like Martin was super pumped up about making this um, 
this Dutch dish is called uh, stampot, you know, and in Belgium, they have it as called stomp. And I like it. It's like mashed potatoes, but you cook them with bacon. I mean, come on, what's good? You know, everything's good with bacon and you put other vegetables in it. And it's just like this very hearty mash mat type of mashed potato and martin was like oh i'm gonna make stumpo tonight with like sausage and he was super pumped up about it i was pumped up about it because i like it and then lou didn't like it and martin was so upset <laughs> martin was so angry and he was like what do you mean you don't like my food um but uh, you know and i mentioned this because you know sometimes um or sometimes I put loud like salsa music and she's like, it's too loud. And and, and with kids, you know, I know. <laughs> and with kids, sometimes sometimes you're just like, oh, I want to show you this about my culture, this about. And, and and I realized that maybe a lot of it is also sensory overload because she's oh, only um, four years old. But I always find that story funny because he was so sad. And, you know, but she's a kid. I'm like, Martin, she's maybe four. Her like, it's not like, like she's 40. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think like maybe. I Maybe in time that, you know, she'll yeah. like either or like her palate might change. Like there were definitely mm-hmm. foods I didn't like as a kid that I absolutely love now. I mean, olives Same. was one of them. Like I used to hate olives as a child, but now I really love them. Uh, so hopefully, yeah. you know, she'll grow, she'll grow into it. But I can, I can only imagine the insulting injury that one sustains <laughs> when your child doesn't love the things that you love. <laughs> I think, yeah. And I think it's also kind of, I don't, I, I think for me personally during this pandemic and I, and, and also with the cooking videos that I've done, because I've done a lot of Puerto Rican dishes for my family. And it's, and I think that a lot of people I talk to has been like kind of a journey within to look at your childhood and how you grew up and how things that seemed very insignificant to you when you're six, seven years old and you go back and you're like, wow, that was a defining moment in my life. And we don't realize it until that moment that we're really forced to look back and for me personally, I look back at my upbringing in Puerto Rico and those eight years, because I lived there from when I was like almost six to 14. So, um, and for me, those were very formative years in the way that, that I talk, I act, I mean, everything that I feel that I am now is a big part of, of that upbringing. And, um, and for, for my daughter, I think of it the same way is that, you know, maybe these dishes that we make, like, don't, they're like, oh, that's just dinner or whatever, but 20, 30 years from now, she's going to be like, wow, like that planted a seed to do X, Y, and Z. So, and I don't know if you've gone through that this past year, but for me, I've been super nostalgic like during this time. It's, uh, yeah, it's, um, gosh, you hit on the head there about like, what are the formative years and who you become and it's so you become so molded in those impressionable years. And part of that nostalgia, is it because your daughter, as she's getting older, do you start to see a little bit of yourself in her? And then you kind of are remembering back to what it was like when you were four years old and, and suddenly realizing that like some of the things that maybe in the moment you not that not to say like a four-year-old's taking stuff for granted but it's like yeah, all of these absolutely. moments that just seemed like everyday moments are suddenly like you were saying the salsa music and the like being bold and expressive and all of these things that you know became so inherently you you're now trying to impart that in in your daughter yeah absolutely and uh and yeah, like I said, you know, you look back and you've seen Lou, so she looks a lot like her mother, to my opinion. Oh, yes, she does. <laughs> so, 
so it's even like a more extra, like, you know, because you look at this little kid and you're like, oh, that's, this is part of me. Like, this is this child, like, that is now kind of acting like me. And it's kind of cool and scary all at the same time. But then she'll do things and I'm like, oh my God, you're your father. Or she'll look at me a certain way. And I'm like, that's, yeah, this is Martin. I feel like from, like, because I haven't gotten the chance to meet Lou in person, but she seems tall like Martin a little bit. She's huge. Yeah, Yeah, she's really, she's she's a, but hey, speaking as a woman who is almost six foot herself, being tall rules. Okay, so. (laughs) Yes, it does. I'm not mad at that. I'm like, you know, and, you know, we always try for her to be very confident, you know, in her, in her height and in just the way she is. And I think that also, again, and something of bringing up, and I feel that now compared to, you know, in the past, and you know, this obviously of being a mixed race person yourself and um, me also growing up as a Puerto Rican, especially going to high school in the United States is that sometimes I feel like 20, 30 years ago, there was this part of you, you kind of wanted to suppress because you wanted to fit in. Whereas now I feel that there's this movement of, and I, and I love, and I sound like an old lady saying this, but I love seeing young people being um, their authentic selves. And I think that it, right now is a very special time, despite all the problems that we're going through, you know, as a country, as a nation, but I do see young people embracing their roots, embracing their culture, wanting to learn where they came from. And um, so I think that um, for Lou, I mean, obviously, you know, she goes, she's in a very diverse environment in Washington, DC. I'm very super lucky about that. Um, but I think that um, there would be more embracing than rejecting, which I'm very excited about. That's good. That's good to hear. Yeah. You, you know, growing up in the 90s, uh, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, uh, in a world that tried to be post-racial, but all that meant was that we didn't talk about race. So mm-hmm. when, you know, when you weren't white or weren't fully white, in my case, you definitely knew that you weren't. And so mm-hmm. white people didn't have to think about race, but you were confronted every single day by these like invisible and then not so invisible barriers that were being placed in front of you. Um, and also too, feeling as though you were allowed to be behave or express yourself in the way that you wanted to express yourself because it was seen as like, you know, n- not inappropriate, but like it was, there was a whitewashing world that was kind of happening in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, um, you know, and then when you tried to talk about it, it was, you were the problem because you were bringing up the problem and well, we Absolutely. were a post-racial society then, but yeah, for as painful as like some of these past few years have been in these issues. It's good though, because these issues are being brought up and now we are talking about race and we are realizing, or like, at least I'm not saying we, like we've already known, but, (laughs) um, you know, people like are starting to realize that there are discrepancies and issues and, um, you know, prejudices that are being held against people of color. And, you know, I do have hope for for Lou's generation and younger generations, and I have hope for the future. Um, but have yeah. you have you like experienced any challenges? Uh, you know, being in a mixed household and being a mixed family and having a mixed daughter. 
No, in the sense that, again, we live in Washington, D.C., and, and I call it my little bubble, but and we see more and more mixed families um, coming up. And I think like in any family, and I, it's really interesting with this whole conversation, not that I want to bring pop culture, but like Meghan Markle and Harry and it's like, oh, is the kid going to be dark? But I did. Right. I in, know. Why was that a concern? <laughs> I know. And uh, and. And, you know, and obviously in Latino families, like there is this tinge of racism or I wouldn't call, I mean, more biased, you know, more towards light skinned people. And, um, and I remember like, oh, people are like, oh, she has good hair or, you know, <laughs> and uh, so you still have these little things, you know, I'm super fortunate to have like the most amazing in-laws ever, you know, who are super supportive and love Lou. Um, but, you know, Martin has also encountered comments, not from, you know, his immediate family or his family, but Pete, like uh, somebody was, you know, showed him a picture of Lou, somebody back in Holland. And it was like, oh, well, she doesn't look Dutch. And Martin's like, but, you know, what does Dutch look like? And he grew up in Rotterdam. So a lot of people there probably had, that's probably the highest number of mixed race folks in Holland and a big Afro-Caribbean. So for him, he's like, yeah, even if, she, you know, what is, what is Dutch looking? So, um, so, you know, you, you get those comments every now and then, or kind of like, oh, good that she came out with that hair because, you know, I mean, yeah. I grew up with a fro, so thank God for, you know, my hair thinning in my late thirties, but, <laughs> but, um, but much easier to manage, but, you know, you grow up with these, um, complexes sometimes, um, growing up, you know, I grew up, about it with my hair and uh yeah. and it's it's nice to see. I see my little nieces and they have these like beautiful like, you know, curls that their moms just let them and I'm like I'm so, and I and I told their moms I'm like I'm so glad that you do that for your kid because you don't know what it was like to be being raised in 90 degree weather and sitting under a dryer to unrollers to make my hair straight, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so again, like, this is why I'm feeling a little little bit hopeful about the future. And, and I think that there's always going to be those moments. And, you know, obviously with an impending move to Europe and having to raise her in in a different environment too, it's like, you know, is she, uh, we're moving to Belgium. So now it's like a whole fourth culture, right? Because you have that, you know, and people think, oh, Dutch and Belgians, like not that, but it is a different culture. It's like, I mean, I have nieces that are half Dominican, half Puerto Rican. They're different cultures, different countries. I mean, you have might have some similarities, but it's still different. So now you introduce a fourth culture and, you know, is she going to be seen as an outsider? Is she going to be able to fit in? And obviously, and these are all things that I've been racking my brain (laughs) brain over. I mean, I think she'll be fine. But of course, as a parent, you worry, um, you know, because you want your kid to thrive in any environment that they're in. You don't want them to become self-conscious about who they are inherently or feel as though they need to suppress a part of themselves or feel as though they need to change something that's inherently, inherently them. But I would, I'd argue, you know, as a person who felt as though she was an outsider in a lot of situations, like looking at 
something from the outside, looking at the picture from outside of the frame gives you a full idea of kind of, or a a wider view of what's going on. You can then experience the world from multiple perspectives. You can then see an issue from like different angles, or you can even, you know, I think it also makes you more adaptable. And, uh, you, you know, especially with the, the different languages that, uh, Lou speaks, I think, um, you know, it, it gives you more tracks in your brain to create solutions for problems. It's like, yeah. she's not going to be thinking in one language. She'll be thinking in three. And like, as, as studies have shown that different languages, uh, kind of communicate differently in our in our brains. And so she'll, I think it's going to be really exciting to see. And she'll definitely be a very creative problem solver, definitely a leader and definitely a person who I think, uh, is going to know herself and maybe in her thirties have a 90 day fiance herself (laughs) because she'll know herself so well. (laughs) She has two passports. So good for her. Um, (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh my goodness. That's really cool. Wait, so an EU passport, right? Yeah, she's a she's a dual citizen, U.S. and in oh, the Netherlands. Yeah. That's awesome. Wait, was she born in the United States? As she well? was born in the U.S. Okay. and um, and because Martin is a her, you know, her yes. father, like she yes. she was able to get a Dutch passport. So yeah, it's kind of and you know, and also she has that free freedom, right? Like you know, she turns eighteen, she wants to study in the states, so she wants to study in Europe. She has those options as well. So I think in terms of raising a not only a multicultural child but a multinational child yes (laughs) there's um definitely there's challenges obviously because i mean now she spends more time with her abuela her puerto rican grandma because you know she lives in new york and then now soon we'll be back in europe she'll spend more time with her open oma so you always have that tug of war being in an international relationship and we're you know both partners their homes are in completely opposite ends of the world right um so you know there's that rich culture part but then there's that tough part that I mean, when I moved here, I moved here to my dad was um, was in his last years of his life. So that was one of the big reasons for me to move back. And obviously now, you know, we're going to do that, you know, with his with his his mom, who's not doing very well health wise. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, having that balance, too, of, of um, not only a multicultural family, but a multinational family. It's given you adaptability. I feel as though some people see things like moving to countries um, as like a permanent thing. And when in reality, it's like, well, it's just this chapter of it. And or or sometimes people will be in a job and they think that that job is like the end all be all like, oh, that's the job I'm going to be in. Uh, Cause I like, that's it's to the end of my end of my days. And it's like, well, things aren't, they don't have to be permanent and you can be adaptable and, you know, change course. Do you feel as though um, being like multicultural has kind of shown you that there's lots of different ways to live. And so you've like, cause your life is like, you've lived many, many different lives. You've, <laughs> you know, been a Marine and lived in Belgium and some time in Germany and come back to the U S and now you're headed off again. And it's incredible. And I think that, you know, first of all, my, my upbringing, right. Like I spent some years 
um, you know, before I became an adult in Puerto Rico, some years in the United States. So it's, again, one of those things that obviously when I moved, I was, especially when I moved from Puerto Rico to the U.S., I had started high school and I was like, I hate you, mom and dad, for I was happy in Puerto Rico and you guys had to move me here. So uh, you go through through that stage, but then you look back and you're like, oh my God, like I've had this amazing opportunity to grow up in two unique places, languages, culture, and just be exposed to so much. And then subsequently with the military, and I always, um, you know, my husband and I were dating, like he had never, he lived in Italy for a while, like on a work assignment, but it was like half a year. So it wasn't like a permanent, permanent move. Um, but, um, but I do think for me, like, I don't think I can, I, I can, this is like the longest I, I lived here for nine years in Washington, D.C., not in the same house, but like it's going to be nine years in October. Well, I won't hit the nine year mark, but um, but it's yeah, it's been almost nine years. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I've lived, lived here so long um, because that's and then after the, and then before that, yeah, living in, in Belgium. And actually, my last apartment in Belgium was the longest I've lived in a place period since I graduated high school, since living in my parents. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. So I had that and I had that apartment for three years. So it was kind of a big deal. Um a year at uh, three years and two months to be exact. Um <laughs> but um but I think that it it's also part of 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 who I am and how, and not only that, like my best friend, Sarah from college, she's like, you know, when you're Jessica's friend, you're her friend for life. You can escape her even if she move away, because I, I, I am, I have to say, I pride myself in being very good at keeping in touch. Um, but I do leave a little piece of myself in every, every place that I live. And, um, and I love visiting. And when I lived in Europe, I spent obviously because of the Marine work I was doing with the Marines and my parents, I would, travel three or four times back to the States. And pre-pandemic, we used to travel a lot to Europe sometimes. I think one year we went there three times or at least two times every year. So um, so it, it just never seems very finite. Like if I leave somewhere, it doesn't feel like, oh, this is the end. Um, obviously, I'm I haven't been back to Korea, you know, the two places that I've lived at, I, Japan and Korea, they're so far and I don't have any familial t- ties there, but everywhere else I end up going back and forth. <laughs> what advice would you have for families that don't necessarily live in the most diverse neighborhoods like like Washington, D.C., and they might have mi- be a mixed family with like a mixed child, um, but they're not necessarily surrounded by much diversity? What would be some of your advice? I think the great thing now is technology and there's so much programming that you can watch with your kids that, you know, to teach them about the world, to teach them about different cultures. And also like in the most random places you realize, oh, there is a Mexican community there, or there's this Vietnamese community there, or there's, um, I mean, I was reading about this whole Vietnamese community in Arkansas and, um, and what better way for, for people to learn about cultures than through food. So I think that even in the most whitest place in America, you can find an enclave of something, you know, that will open your eyes to something else. And, and of course, technology, like there's so many movies and programming and things that you can watch as a family. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like a kid's program. Like I remember as a kid, I used to watch a lot of nature documentaries with my father, you know, like the Nat Geo ones from back in the day. So there's a lot of things that you can do as a family that, you know, necessarily does not mean, hey, we're going to spend $3,000 on plane tickets. Jessica, thank you so much for sharing your story and for giving us advice on how we can all be a bit more adaptable. Best of luck to you and your family as you embark on a new chapter in Europe. 
Amuse Bouche is hosted by yours truly, Kehlani Palmasano. The music at the beginning and the end of this podcast is the Great North Sound Society, and the song is appropriately titled South Street Strut, a little nod to my Philly folks out there. At the moment, I'm working as a one-woman band, producing, editing, and bringing these amazing food stories to your ears. So if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and also subscribe to the Amuse-Bouche newsletter on Substack, where every week I share even more food stories and recipes meant to delight and amuse. It's a free newsletter at the moment, but I do accept tips, so consider helping a sister out by throwing her a few bucks a month. If not, you can support me by liking, commenting, and sharing my work. You can also follow me personally at Kehlani Says on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of Amuse Bouche, feel free to slide into my DMs or just hit me up on Substack. 